Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. With social media Mm. and what the research is telling us in terms of mental health and particularly uh, suicide rates Mm. in young people Mm. is that it's the length of time that they're spending on social media and what that's doing and what computer use is doing to the sleeping habits Mm. of young people, which Mm. has a very critical role to play and is an underlying cause of vulnerability to mental health. And certainly it would would impact on people's perception and ability to engage in meaningful relationships. Hello, lovely people of pods, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. You are with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia, and I'm also the host of the show. Now, the political year, or parliamentary year, we should say, is winding to a close as we're recording. We're recording on the last sitting day of Parliament for 2020, but who's excited? Uh, me. I'm joined this week by two MPs, Fiona Martin, who is a Liberal from Sydney, and Andrew Giles, who is a Labor frontbencher from Melbourne. These guys have recently created a parliamentary friendship group with an objective of ending loneliness, which is a really great project and a really interesting subject which is why I thought I would bring them both into the studio and we could kick around this whole issue because there's a whole bunch of stuff about loneliness that I understand minutely being a human, but there's a whole bunch of other things about loneliness at a, at a societal level, a clinical level, at an economic level that I do not understand at all. So this is what this conversation is going to be about. So welcome to both of you. you. Now, I'll just sort of kick off. I mean, it's sort of one of those topics where it's so large, you, don't, you hardly know where to start. But Andrew sent me a paper to help me prepare for this conversation about a white paper about ending loneliness. And there was a stat in there that said one in four Australians face problematic levels of loneliness. Fiona, do you want to kick off? Why Is that broadly right and why is that the case, do you think? So loneliness is the perception that your social or your friendships or your quality of your relationships is not what you would desire. So it's a feeling of a lack of connectedness yeah. with people. And it is quite common, I think, because we live in a very individualistic society. Mm. If you look at the way our homes are designed and how we interact in our homes, we often have televisions in our rooms now and we do a lot of things in isolation. So I think there's, a, in some ways, a lack of sort of community 
engagement in that respect. Mm. And there are particular groups in society who are more vulnerable than others. For example, returned young returned veterans are, are, are particularly mm. uh, vulnerable to loneliness on return mm-hmm. from is being that, deployed. Is that because they've sort of come out of a you know a very intense set of circumstances and they've come back to civilian life, which would seem quite different, obviously, to where they've been. Is it because of that? Or Potentially they... as well. I think that they've they've not been with their family and, and mm. friends and then sort of that transition mm. and then the reconnection puts them at greater risk. Mm. So there are people that are at higher risk. Loneliness and mental health have a bi-directional relationship mm. in the sense that those that have pre-existing mental health conditions are at greater risk of being lonely, but also those that are lonely are at greater risk of mental health conditions like anxiety and depression, mm. but also physical health conditions as well, like hypertension, high cholesterol, poor sleep, which also has a role to play in in mental health mm. as well. Mm. So loneliness has an impact not just on our mental health, but on our physical health. Mm-hmm. I should tell the listeners you, you've actually got a doctorate in psychology and I think one of your areas of expertise in terms of your research expertise was about resilience. Resilience is an area that I'm particularly interested mm. in, particularly in young people, and I think that we need to focus very much in that area. It's mm. about being able to bounce back or move forward from a difficult situation and I think this year has been a year where we've tested our resilience Mm, you know, oh, across the board. Yeah. Well, that's a good cue for you, Andrew. So what's the, been the impact of the pandemic? I mean, that's like a high lob question. I think it's pretty obvious, but let's think about that. So we had a pre-existing problem with loneliness. What's the pandemic done? Well, I think we had a crisis when it comes to loneliness in Australia before the pandemic. And I think what the pandemic has done has both accelerated that and shone a really clear spotlight on the issue, particularly for, for people in Melbourne, my hometown, who went through a lengthy lockdown period. Mm. And I think we saw in that and felt in that people's sense of connection being not something that's sort of a a secondary or or tertiary consideration, but something that people really focused on as going to the quality of their lives. And it's something that I'm excited about as a policymaker because one of the challenges of, of loneliness is the stigma. Because it's something that's subjective and people feel a bit awkward or have felt a bit awkward in talking about, we don't talk about in this place. And and that's why I am excited to be working with Fiona on this, because I think the first step is to bring something that matters so much to Australians. You talked about one in four. The white paper that the research group that Michelle Lim has, has put together thinks that that may have doubled during the pandemic. Mm. And And, and that's something that we need to be talking about in this place and thinking about what we can do as policymakers to respond to. And and Fiona mentioned linkages between mental health and loneliness and then loneliness creating mental health issues. What makes people vulnerable to being lonely? I mean, it sounds like an obvious question. Living alone Mm -hmm. is one factor that contributes to an increased risk. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, just the way, as I said before, about houses and the way buildings are designed, that has an an, an impact Mm -hmm. on you know, whether you cross paths with people and that's how you develop relationships, those spontaneous interactions in, say, apartment blocks Mm. or where there's community facilities where people can come together and interact. There are opportunities to engage and connect with people and I think that in our society there's probably a a lack of opportunities to connect. So it's really important that we 
I think, provide opportunities and incentives and initiatives that can promote connectedness, real good quality connectedness mm. in, in our community. Because it's, it's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? Like think about sort of two cohorts who I, you know, possibly because I'm in the age to have older kids and ageing parents, I can think about two obvious cohorts elderly people who are vulnerable to being lonely because a number of people live alone, people living in their homes longer because they're getting home assistance or because people, you know, relatives are looking after them, aged care's hard to come by and it's expensive. So there's that. But about young people, again, either of you jump in, it's sort of a conundrum, isn't it? Because, like, we live in an age where we are entirely hyper-connected. Like, my kids have levels of digital and practical connections that I did not have when I was growing up. And yet there's an epidemic of mental health problems, loneliness problems with kids, disconnection issues. What the hell's going on and how do we sort that out? That's a really important question and maybe the biggest question that I'd like to see us work through in this. I think as well as a stigma about loneliness, there's a perception that it affects only older people Mm. and all the research says it's actually pretty evenly distributed across the population. There are some population groups, and Fiona touched upon one, that may be particularly vulnerable, but age doesn't appear to be a demographic that drives loneliness. And I'm really interested in the impact of social media on how people form connections and maintain connections. And I saw in my kids who are younger, who are very comfortable, in fact, they, they love my iPad more than just about anything, mm. but how desperate they were to get back to school and an environment where they physically connected with their friends. Mm. And of all the things that we need to focus on in research, I think is understanding how social media both facilitates connection, and, and obviously that's a great thing, but how it also can pull people apart. And Mm. and I think there's some really interesting and some concerning research about the link between loneliness and right-wing extremism that's being explored at the moment, which I think goes to people's retreat into social media echo chambers. Mm. Into bubbles. With social media Mm. and what the research is telling us in terms of mental health and particularly uh, suicide rates Mm. in young people Mm. is that it's the length of time that they're spending on social media and what that's doing and what computer use and subjective kind of isolated interactions with Mm. computers and and phones is doing to the sleeping habits Mm. of young people, which Mm. has a very critical role to play and is an underlying cause of vulnerability to mental health and mm. certainly it would it would impact on people's perception and ability to engage in meaningful relationships. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of so huge this conversation. It's sort of like it, it blows my mind. Okay, let's let's pull up and think about what the risks are from being lonely. And we could sort of look at this in a few different ways. We can look at the at a risk to the individual, which I think would be reasonably obvious to everyone listening. But then there's risks to society, there's risks to the economy. Let's think about that. Let's tease Mm. out some of those issues. Well, I'm not sure that the risks are as obvious or uh, the significance of the risks to the individual. I mean, the thing that blows me away is the consistent advice from people like Vivek Murphy, the former US Surgeon General, that loneliness is as bad for you as obesity or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. 
And as a public health issue, those two things are things we talk about a lot, particularly smoking, particularly the risk of obesity. We need to treat loneliness as a health issue with the same significance. And then we talk about the economy. On one of the debates that, that's really been fascinating to me as the Shadow Minister for Cities is how we continue to realise the great benefits around innovation that come from people being able to gather together mm. and informally exchange ideas. But we know from the research here the same is about an individual's quality of life. There's a real relationship between that and how we value human connections, I guess, intrinsically about the things that we value in our lives, but also how we how a modern knowledge-orientated economy um, functions as well. Mm. Yeah, look, I think I agree. And I think that COVID has made it very difficult for people and has increased the risk of loneliness. And so I've been a big advocate for mental health reasons for mm. people to get back to work because mm. I value those spontaneous interactions that people have in the workplace and the value that that adds to people's psyche and and well-being mm. and and there's plenty of research about you know well-being and mental functioning and productivity so in terms of impact on society huge impact mm. huge impact mm. we want our workforce to be to be well to be able to be as productive as we can. Picking up the productivity point, we were joking before we hit record, there are many other factors beyond the requirements of the productivity economy sitting behind loneliness, right? I'll acknowledge that. But, you know, people who have to work very hard, people who, you know, have caring responsibilities... Obviously, we have support in our workplaces in terms of human human interaction and support from our families. But I know myself, I spend half my time telling dear friends, sorry, we can't catch up. Sorry, I can't ring you back. Sorry, I can't come to that thing. And I should have no... I should have no friends at all. Seriously, I mean, I'm just very fortunate that, you know, some of my oldest friends have been some of the most tenacious in my life at just saying to me, you know, Murph, get on the bloody phone or I'll shoot you, right? It's sort of like, but I'm very lucky in that sense. But it's sort of like, that's kind of at the root of this though, isn't it? Like, because people are so extended in what is required of them as Hmm. productive participants in an economy as, you know, people who want to look their children in the eye, people who want to be able to look their parents in the eye and and feel as though you've done the right thing by all of these relationships doesn't leave a lot of surplus for hanging around yakking at the shop or in the bar or wherever Mm. else, right? So... Do we have to look? I'm not. I'm not saying let's break all the machines or let's burn down capitalism, but I'm just curious, right? Because sort of one of the reasons we're here is because of what our economy values, right? Which is obviously people being hyperextended a lot of the time. So how do we shift those incentives? And Fiona's looking as though she may not be buying my argument. This is good if you don't know. Well, I think if we come back to what loneliness is, it's a perception of not having quality you know, and quality relationships and and connectedness. And so if that's at the core, that's what we need to work on. You know, we'll always be busy. We'll always be pushed if we're a parent or a carer of some sort. It's it's all about perception very much. And you mentioned resilience before, and resilience is so important, not just in mental health, but I think in part of loneliness as well. We want to encourage people to, to reach out to others, but we want to provide good opportunities for that to occur as well. And I know Andrew wants to say something, but just sticking with that resilience point, though, just because this is a question that I ask a lot in my brain at about midnight when things are, you know, racing around my mind, are people now less resilient than they used to be or 
do we just think they are because we do have literally epidemics of mental health problems and, and, and things that we didn't have a generation or two ago? What's going on? Well, look, with resilience, there are it's a you know there are genetic components to it but when it comes to the research the environment has more of a role to play and certainly what we've seen in parenting styles and practices over time is that there's been this tendency to protect our children in fact the best gift you can give your child is resilience mm. so investing in young people and investing in prevention and early intervention and building a generation of resilient kids is really important and that's working on social emotional skills conflict resolution skills, negotiation skills from a young age so that children grow up to be able to assess, feel competent Mm. in, in difficult situations and manage them accordingly. Because you know, parents often focus on academics. They think that's the be-all and end-all. And it's very important, of course, by all means. But what matters most and what we see in the research about success in, in later adulthood is is the resilient, the resilient adult. And to be a resilient adult, you need to have been exposed to little setbacks across mm. your life. Mm. So is that part of the issue? Do you think that we helicopter our kids so so massively that we don't we don't let them fail at anything, we don't let them feel sad, we don't let them feel cold, we don't you know, is is that is that part of it? I mean, we're slightly off loneliness. We will return, well, I promise you. But I'm just, I'm, I'm really fascinated by. I that. don't know. I think it's a really interesting question. I think we all think about our role as parents as opposed to our role as policymakers in in this. And, and probably I'm feeling a little bit of guilt sure. at, at this yes, moment. Well, we all do. But but yeah. I think that there's kind of two bits to this. To me, one is to come together and actually talk about something that really matters, that impacts individuals' lives and how our society functions, and to create a space where where we can have that conversation. Mm. And the second bit, and this is maybe the bit where Fiona and I from time to time might disagree, is to think about how this shapes and is shaped by the society and the economy and what's going on. You know, I mean, I, I think questions about the role of government, how work is done, how work is regulated, shape these questions. And and I think in the first instance, though, it's so important for us to think about what a good society looks like and how important human connection is in that. And And for me, that's the really interesting question that brings me actually to this place and to think about what government can do to get there. And I think thinking about loneliness, thinking about how people can effectively engage in their world on their terms or feel that they can't mm-hmm. is absolutely fundamental to, to building a good society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, loneliness is one of the biggest public health issues of the 21st century, without a doubt, and I think we agree on that. Mm-hmm. But one thing I will say is that hard work doesn't kill people. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not the cause of loneliness. Oh, so yeah. certainly, I'm not, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not, yeah, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not lamenting hard work. It's just more that how you be your best self in all of your spheres, that's the issue. I mean, look, I'd like to retire tomorrow, but obviously that's not going to happen. But it's, <laughs> but it's you know what I we mean? We don't want it's, you to. Well, no, <laughs> well it's, it's, it's not an option. But no, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm hard work's a terrible thing. Like I, hard work has driven me my entire life, but it's just more. I'm, I'm acutely conscious that we're talking about a problem that, in to some degree, not not to all degrees, but to some degree, is shaped by the dynamics of the society that we currently live in. Like, I mean, let's let's call out the elephant in the room, right? At one point, women were the glue who kept people not being lonely. Women did all of the caring. Mm. That uh, the economy was predicated on women doing all the caring. Now women participate in the economy, and there are less women 
doing all the caring, right? These things have impacts. I mean, I'm quite grateful that this shift has occurred, but it's like they have mm. impacts, right? They're all part of this conversation. So this is what I'm trying to, you know, when I think about this and I think, God, how do you solve it? And we'll get onto that in a minute, what you guys want out of your respective political movements to start dealing with this. But that's, that's why my head explodes because I think how on earth do we pivot these fundamental requirements in our economy, in our society, to try and deal with this really substantial problem. Just before I get on to solutions, potential solutions, what we can do in a policy sense, I think we've sort of answered it, but I'll let's foreground it anyway because there'll be people walking around their neighbourhoods at the moment listening to us who'll be thinking to themselves, well, yeah, look, I've heard those guys talk about the data and, and this is really good to hear parliamentarians, you know, caring about something important, but loneliness, I mean, like who cares? That's someone else's problem or... Isn't it just a matter of, you know, isn't this a self-help issue? Like, why are we talking about governments fixing loneliness? Why isn't this a self-help issue? So let's address that point. So the self-help issue. Yeah, I mean, you, you want people to be able to help themselves. I think it's very important. I mean, I think the role of government is to increase the awareness of the problem and to assist with understanding, you know, we talk a lot about in psychology, psychoeducation, so understanding the mechanisms that sort of get you to that point, mm-hmm. awareness, and then being able to seek help and encouraging people to seek help. And so providing opportunities to do that and having, you know, things like this grant that's available for organisations to assist returning veterans mm-hmm. is, mm. is one opportunity to do that. You're sort of facilitating an environment where, you know, connecting fellow veterans up together to be able to connect. And I think that providing some sort of facilitated environment to do that is very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think that there's two reasons why there's a big role for government. Firstly is, you know, the government has a responsibility to, to safeguard the well-being of citizens. Mm. And, and this is something that, that deeply impacts people's lives. It also impacts the economy. And the UK government did quite a bit of work on this in the lead up to establishing a ministry and a range of programs. So there's a cost in two senses. There's the cost to the health budget, but a big drag on economic growth as well. And I think you sort of hinted at that um, earlier, Catherine, when you talked about you know the, the understanding we have about how so much of our economy particularly the innovation side, is all about effective human connection mm. and the exchange of ideas. And anything that holds that back you know, is, a, is a challenge for the economy. I guess my, my interest is obviously for the society first, but I think we need to think about both of those things. Mm-hmm. So this matters. Yeah, now. and I guess from a health professional's perspective is that increasing the awareness to GPs, to mental health practitioners of the issue of loneliness standing separately from mental health issues, Mm. but being aware of the interaction, of course, and encouraging uh, GPs to do a bit of what we call social prescribing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a little bit of encouragement to get out there and be activated, as we say, Mm. to participate in meaningful interactions in your community, be that in a sporting group, a rotary club Mm. or some sort of community um, engagement. And do you think GPs are not sort of very literate on this stuff or what do you think? I think that we can improve literacy across the board, across all health professionals around loneliness and certainly that could be one of the objectives of our of our parliamentary friendship group mm. is to is to increase the awareness of loneliness across the, the health sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is really the social prescribing, the notion that when someone comes and presents to a GP, it may not be 
the thing that they go, they say they're seeing the GP about may not be the real issue. It may be loneliness. And that's yeah. been particularly recognised in the UK. But a lot of GPs here have been talking about it too. But some have suggested to me they don't quite know what to do. And I think that maybe goes to this wider question of we know that there's been this conversation about a decline in a lot of these voluntary organisations, the bowling alone stuff. So these two things probably run together, building an awareness amongst GPs and other health professionals, mm. but thinking about how we reinforce those voluntary civil society organisations mm. to mm. make sure that there are places there that are people can be avenues for mm. people. directed mm. towards that meet mm. their, their, their interests and, and their needs for connection. Okay. Mm. Here's my Christmas present to both of you. It's okay. You can thank me later. If I could give either of you a magic wand and say you have the power to set up a set of propositions that would go some way to fixing this problem. I mean, you know, I don't know, pick three things. Well, it doesn't have to be three, but I'm granting you power to solve this problem. What's the prescription, Fiona? Well, I think that the issue of loneliness in Australia is a relatively new area in terms of research and mm -hmm. what we know about loneliness in Australian society. So for me, being oh, you want evidence? a scientist practitioner and a psychologist, <laughs> I'd like some more research mm -hmm. done on how we can target and better address loneliness in our society so that I know that we're hitting where it needs to go. Mm -hmm. So I'd like research. I'd like more research. Okay. Um, Any, anything beyond that? I mean, that's it's very sensible well, actually I think, to I think, create an evidence base. I think the understanding that loneliness occurs across the lifespan, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's not just our older Australians who are vulnerable, but it does occur across the lifespan. I think that we have some wonderful initiatives in place already. Our government has a friend line, um, a number of, as I said before, the veterans support initiative. There are various initiatives already in place, but obviously encouraging and then educating the health sector and increasing the aware awareness of loneliness as a problem mm -hmm. to ensure that we are encouraging our health practitioners to look beyond sort of physically, yeah. you know. Yes, look at, look, at, look at the emotional drivers, why someone's sitting in front the of them. The problems that aren't physically yes. visible yes. but that are potentially there and encouraging health practitioners to, to do a bit of social prescribing mm -hmm. to get people activated and to get back out there into the community. I think that's really important. Okay, mm. very good. Andrew? Okay, three things. I agree 100% with Fiona on an evidence base and we need an Australian evidence base. There's some fantastic work that's been done in the UK in particular, but that doesn't really tell us much about some of the population groups in Australia. It tells us absolutely nothing about First Nations people mm. and loneliness, which mm. is something that I think we need to focus on, as well as newly arrived communities. So building that evidence base that's relevant to the Australian context, I think, is the first thing we can do. The second thing I think we need to do is to set a better example, to say that conversations about the things that matter to people's lives are conversations that should be part of our politics, and they needn't be aggressive conversations, mm. because I think the stigma here is really powerful. And I think there's a big bias in politics, I'm maybe going to contradict myself here on the evidence point, to things that we can measure. And loneliness mm. is mm. a subjective condition. Yes. Mm. Uh, feeling alone and being lonely are not the same. People can be very lonely in a crowd or be content and, and feel connected as they want to be by themselves. So to, to make it clear that we can talk about things that are how we feel mm. that can't be precisely measured as citizens and as policymakers. And I think that's for me, something that I'm really keen to work on with Fiona in the new year to set that up. And the third thing, obviously, is to end neoliberalism. Mm. <laughs> 
just go and noise it. That's where we. That's where. That's where we might. Um, that's where Fiona that, That's out. where we might part company. You know, two out of three ain't bad. But but and I I say that I, I actually do say that seriously. But the point I don't disagree with the hard work point. But I think how work is done, and particularly the way in which people's working lives and caring responsibilities are operating, is something we really need to think about in terms of our vision of what a good society looks like. And I reckon we're probably not enormously far apart on that. It's about how we think about it, how we conceptualise the, the role of government. But I'd like to get to that argument with Fiona, and I don't think we're there yet. I do like, um, we need to wrap because we're, we're right on time, but I, I do like this idea of somehow bringing the emotional hinterland of the country into the most combative building in in Australia. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how that happens in practice. It starts by modest conversations. Starts by having a psychologist well, in the house. Well, it, well quite. <laughs> Quite, it does, yeah. yeah. And by having conversations like this mm-hmm. one, right, where conversations like this one are productive for a bunch of reasons. But that 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 is a fascinating thought, how you inject the, the shade, the complexity of people's emotional lives in a building that thrives on binaries and conflict anyway. Let's make that a New Year's project. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> Why not? Catherine, there always will be conflict in this building, but I think yeah. how we manage that is important and the perspectives that come in. I agree 100% with Fiona. A more diverse parliament would probably facilitate better conversations of this nature. Well, a bit of expertise, yeah, and, yeah. and diversity. Totally agree. Anyway, thank you both. You're Bless you both welcome. for a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who is the exec- executive producer of the show. I can't speak anymore because it's last day parliament uh thank you to hannah izzard who cuts the show we will see you very soon tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts good news ad free listening is available on amazon music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your prime membership Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.